This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, we take a deep dive into the Texas wine industry. I review Texas wine news and bring you the information, education, and interviews you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thank you for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 12. Happy Texas Wine Month. I'm continuing my month-long celebration of all things Texas wine. On this episode, I've got an interview with Jessica Dufuy about her impressive new book, The Wines of the Southwest, a guide to New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and Colorado. And then I'm going to get political. Well, not really. I'm just reviewing the book Wine and the White House, A History, and looking for clues about how presidents with ties to the Lone Star State drank or didn't in the White House. Which Texas wines have been served at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? What did LBJ drink? And how about the Bushes? Let's not forget Denison-born Dwight D. Eisenhower. Finally, I'm drinking the Llano Estacado Winery 1836 Red that was part of the State Fair of Texas Blue Ribbon Selection Case. This wine was just named the Best of Show Texas Red Wine by the San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo Wine Competition. But first, let's take a look at the Texas wine news. Effective October 14th, Texas wineries that had been shut down because of the pandemic were finally able to reopen again in most places. According to a memo posted by Governor Abbott's office, the county judge of each county could choose to opt in or out with the TABC to allow bars or similar establishments to operate with in-person service. In some counties like Dallas and Harris, the county judges have declined to opt in. Patrick Whitehead, the president of the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association and the Texas Winery PAC board member, said, We've made clear that our businesses can safely reopen, and we're grateful for the opportunity to throw open our doors once again to Texans ready to taste and buy Texas wine. William Chris Vineyards and Lost Draw Cellars have merged. These two organizations have a shared vision and set of values, and this merger is an evolution in a long history of close partnerships between Chris Brundrett and Andrew Sides. They've already founded Yes We Can Wine Sway Rosé, Texas's first Texas-grown canned wine brand. And now, although their brands will maintain separate winemakers and portfolios, their merger will allow both operations to leverage an expanded array of tools to make wine more efficiently for their collective fans. They'll also be able to expand benefits across the teams, including comprehensive health insurance, wine education programs, and personal development training. The press release says they've been talking about this move for a few years. Of course, both wineries are leaders in producing 100% Texas-grown wines. The merger will result in a new parent company, William Chris Wine Company. In addition to Brundrett and Sides, who will take the lead on all day-to-day operations for the company, the founding partners Bill Blackman of William Chris Vineyards, along with Andy Timmons and Troy Otmers of Lost Straw Cellars, will continue to hold advisory roles within the organization. Be sure to watch the Facebook Live On Saturday, October 24th at 4 p.m., when Chris Brundrett and Andrew Sides will be together talking about a great lineup of wines for Texas Wine Month in a virtual special edition tasting. Houstonia Magazine is reporting a new Texas-themed restaurant that will showcase Texas's meat culture. This is a partnership between Houston's richest restaurateur and Texas's largest ranch, King Ranch. And this will be called King Ranch Texas Kitchen and will be opening before the end of the year in Houston. This sounds like great news, but what I found disturbing in this press release is the claim that King Ranch Texas Kitchen also boasts that at least 10% of its wine list will come from the Lone Star State. Wait, they're boasting about at least 10% of the wine list coming from the Lone Star State? That seems like a wimpy number to me. Perhaps you agree. I really wish they'd take a play from the Cabernet Grill playbook. I wish they would go 100% Texas on their wine list, or at least lean significantly into Texas. Don't claim to be all about Texas and then have a 90% other wine list. There's great news for San Antonio wine lovers. Rerooted 210 is San Antonio's first ever urban winery, 
and it will open soon in the hemisphere. Jennifer Beckman is the brains behind this new endeavor, and you may know her from her time at the Slate Mill Wine Collective. She's opening a casual and modern space that includes a patio. There she'll be offering wine produced by Slate Mill. The inaugural lineup will include seven wines on tap. She's got two whites, a rosé, and four reds. And she'll be offering the wines in keg. In an article in the San Antonio Current, Jennifer said, It'll be like a filling station in Europe where people come up to fill a growler of everyday drinking wine. We want to encourage people to take this wine home and drink it. That's what it's for. And then come back every few days and get a refill. Wine should be fun. It should be enjoyed. Alongside the in-house brand of draft and bottled wine, Rerooted 210 will offer an array of wines from around the state. Beckman says she wants to shine a spotlight on vintners making world-class products while offering a different marketing and identity perspective on Texas wine. I can't wait to visit. In her new article for Forbes.com, Michelle Williams talks about the innovation happening in the Texas wine industry. From planting new varieties to new winemaking technology, there's a lot going on in Texas. Michelle highlights a whopping 18 Texas red wines. This article is the red wine complement to the white wine version that she wrote a few weeks ago. I'll mention just a few of the wines that I think may be a little less familiar to listeners. One is the 2017 Kerrville Hills Rustic Spur Vineyard Tanat from the Texas Hill Country. Every Texas wine lover should know about Tanat. Next is the 2019 La Valentina Rhone Blend. This is a new label from Ray Wilson of Wine for the People, who also has Dandy Rosé and Dandy Bubbles. This wine is 70% Carignan with equal percentages of Morved, Grenache, and Cunois. It's not released yet, but it will be very soon. And I was able to taste a sample and found it quite delicious. Next is the 2017 Tatum Salt Lick Vineyards Morvedra from the Texas Hill Country. I haven't tried this yet, but I've heard great things about Tatum wines, and I'm anxious to try this as well. I encourage you to check out this article, as well as Michelle's article on white wines, and I'll link to both of those in the show notes. The Texas Wine Lover website recently published the results from the 2020 San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo Wine Competition. Here are some of the top winners. The Best of Show Texas Red Wine was the 2017 Llano Estacado Winery, 1836 Red. The Best of Show White Wine was the 2019 Adelfo Cellars Old Friends White Blend from the High Plains. And the Best of Show Rosé was the 2019 Adega Vino Rosé of Tempranillo from the High Plains. There are so many Texas winners, so I'm only going to name the double gold medal winners. For the listing of all the winners, be sure and visit TXWineLover.com. The top of class Viognier winner is the Bent Oak Wineries, Texas Viognier from 2019. And the top of class winner for Red Blends is the Bingham Family Vineyards Dugout from 2017. Also winning double gold, Fiesta Wineries Sangiovese from the High Plains from 2018. The Longhorn Cellars Alicante Boucher Crimson Ridge Vineyards from 2016. The Lucky Vines Vineyards Montepulciano from 2018. Bending Branch Petite Syrah from Newson Vineyards. The Hack Thomas Jefferson Series Jaquez Madeira from 2016. And finally, the Yano Winery Cellars Select Port. That's non-vintage. And that is the Texas Wine News. Did you know that it's possible to buy me a glass of Texas wine? Details are on my website at thisistexaswine.com. Click the Support the Podcast tab. Also, I have a fun giveaway that I'm sending out to people who sign up for my monthly email newsletter. It's a Texas wine quiz, and it has the answers included so that you can check yourself. In just 10 questions, you can identify if you're a Texas wine expert and if you're ready to go to work in a winery tasting room. Sign up for the newsletter on the website. That's www.thisistexaswine.com. You'll see the button for newsletter sign up. Now on to our main segment. It was my pleasure to get to speak with Jessica Dufuy about her newest book, The Wines of Southwest USA, a guide to New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and Colorado. 
I've learned so much from reading Jessica's writing about Texas wine over the years, and I've had the opportunity to hear her speak at Texom a few times, too. Jessica is a freelance journalist who's been writing about Texas wine. She's had a long stint at Texas Monthly, and she's been writing about Texas wine for them since about 2007. She's also a certified sommelier, a certified specialist of wine, an advanced certificate holder from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, and now she's studying for her diploma. She's the author of several other books, including Uchi the Cookbook, The Saltlet Cookbook, and several others. I really enjoyed getting to catch up with Jessica to learn more about the process of putting together this book and what she's learned over the years about Texas wine. I love hearing her take on what Texas wine needs to do next to continue making progress. Boy, it sounds like Arizona is really making some great wine, too, and that was a major takeaway for me in reading this book. Not that it's a competition, but kind of. Okay, without further ado, here's Jessica Dufuy. Well, first of all, congratulations on your new book. This is quite an undertaking. It was. (laughs) Yeah, The Wines of Southwest USA, A Guide to New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and Colorado. And for listeners, you need to understand that this is a fairly thick book, and it is for wine connoisseurs, I would say. This is the definitive guide. I have to imagine that there has never been anything like this put together. Yeah, certainly not for the Southwest, right? Like, um, because... In different parts of the region, it's they're still it's still emerging. You know, um, Texas has definitely had some books um, over time. You know, from the 1990s all the way to now, we've had a few different guides put out, um, but in different ways. You know, so this was a kind of a specific assignment that needed to cover things in a certain way. So I hope it just adds to what's out there already. And for people who might not be familiar with Classic Wine Library, can you talk a little bit about how this kind of fits into their overall portfolio? Yeah. So the Classic Wine Library is is a pretty neat, um, well, okay, I should say this. It's through Infinite Ideas Publishing, which puts out the Classic Wine Library, which has put that whole, whole library together. And so what's neat about it is you know, especially to date, everything that they have put out, every book they've put out has been about, you know, iconic wine regions like Chablis and Burgundy. And they've done, you know, the wines of Greece, the wines of Georgia. Um, and then some in the new world, like, uh, Jim Clark just released, um, South Africa. We have New Zealand. Um, but to date they hadn't yet done anything on America. Um, so, uh, the idea was to put together something, uh, a whole series of American books. Um, and, um, in this case, they wanted to start with the wines of the Southwest because in a lot of ways, this is really where it all began for Vitis vinifera, uh, which we can get into in just a minute. But, um, but the people who typically write these books are people who are masters of wine or specific experts in the industry um, for those particular regions. And so um, it's pretty humbling. And, and um, I will tell you at the beginning, kind of like in, I was incredulous that you know people were going to let me write this book. I mean, I've been covering Texas wine for over a decade, but... Um, it was a big undertaking, um, not only just because of the geographic size, but because I wanted to represent all of it well. And um, so I'm excited I got to do it, but I definitely uh, was a little trepidatious also. <laughs> well, it is a huge geographic region, but mm-hmm. I do think that you're probably the perfect person for this because I know that you have a history and a, a background in history. It and is, so yeah. I And that really shows through. Um, just if people um, haven't yet had an opportunity to look at the book there are, for each of those four states that is covered we've got sections on uh, the history of the state the history of wine in that state climate geology the wine growing regions the grapes that are grown and challenges like weather and disease and then you cover selected producers and places mm-hmm. to dine and places to stay right so to give you an example of what I found to be just incredible detail was the section on caliche soils. And I've heard (laughs) that term a thousand times, but I've never read an entire page in a wine book about 
not only what that means, but what are the drawbacks and what are the positive benefits at the same time to that particular soil type and where else in the world might that be found? Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that you had to do an incredible amount of research on a very wide variety of topics to put this book together. How long did this take you? Yeah. So uh, cheating a little bit in that I have been cut, like, you know, we've talked about like I've covered Texas wine for Texas monthly for a long time to over 10 years and then have done some, um, stories for the Guild of Sommeliers on Arizona and Colorado. Um, so I had at least kind of my, my foundation for, how I wanted to attack it. But then yes, I am not a geologist, nor am I a chemist or a viticulturist, although I'm starting to study all of that now, uh, in more in depth. Um, but I, um, I really just had to lean on my reporting skills. I mean, I have a master's in journalism. That's what I've been doing. So I looked to the people who are the experts. And so it was a lot of interviews. It was a lot of reading, um, but then also trying to sift through all of that and put it together in a cohesive narrative that people could understand. I mean, yes, this is a book for people who are wine enthusiasts, but I didn't want to like, you know, bore everybody, you know, two paragraphs in. So <laughs> I had to no, try I to. I thought it was fascinating. It, it hit just the right note. If you're interested in wine and also in, in history and, and weather patterns and, um, you know, I, I also loved the detail on the uh, geological features of Texas. So that mm. that part always trips me up just a little. What's the difference in, you know, I, I understand the, the kind of mesa, but exactly what is the Llano uplift or the all the different terms? Yeah. Are you asking me that right now? No, no. Well, oh, good. I'm, I'm, just I'm, saying, like, I'm glad, I'm glad I have that there, as a reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's actually funny because we talk about the Llano Estacado all the time uh, and we just call it that, right? Just the Llano Estacado. It's just slang for us. And I think that it was really important, um, you know, as I look through the geology of the region as a whole. So Colorado, you know, New Mexico, Arizona less so because um, of where it sits in the whole Rocky Mountain formation. But if you think about it, like the Rocky Mountains, the tail tiny end of the Rocky Mountains does end technically in Texas, just barely at the Guadalupe mountains. And, um, but then when we talk about the Llano Estacado, we don't really think about what that is. And I'm, it, I'm always amazed cause I travel a lot now for wine to different regions of the world pre COVID, um, where I always like, Oh, well we grow that. And they'll be like, you grow grapes in Texas. And you know, I'll be like, yeah, actually we have really great, you know, a great climate for it, particularly in the area where we have a higher elevation and they're really, they just don't understand. It just doesn't compute. So when I go into it, I'm like, yeah, actually we've got, you know, 3,500 feet and 4,000 feet. Of course, then I have to like translate that into meters. Cause of course we're the only people that use feet. Um, but <laughs> it's always kind of a revelation to people. And I felt like, you know, particularly because the publisher for this book is based in the UK I felt like it really needed some explanation and it actually helped me appreciate the geology of Texas a lot more. So bringing in the Edwards Plateau, the Balcones Escarpment, understanding how they all are really interconnected, even between the whole country and the high plains. Um, and yeah, it's really important. Well, I learned a lot and it's not um, something that's going to stick in my brain after one reading, but I'm glad to have it as a reference book on my shelf for sure. Yes. Yeah. And I also learned some new words. Like I think of the word during winemaking as to acidify a wine, but you mm. say assiduate. Is that the word that you use? Well, I wouldn't say that I say that. Um, so again, is that, is that what I'm supposed to be saying? <laughs> so, so this is, this is really fascinating. You know, like I've, this is my technically my seventh book to publish. Most of my other books are cookbooks. Um, but because this book, my editor was from the UK and that, again, that's where the publisher is. Um, and all of the books that are published in the classic wine library are from a UK perspective. So it's edited in like the queen's English, right? Like, so that is what they say, you know? Okay. So, and then the spelling you'll notice too, like instead of color C O L O R it's C O L O U R. So all those little bitty nuances are very different. Um, but yes, assiduate would be the correct term in that case. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. like I said, I learned something new. <laughs> so you have been doing wine writing in Texas for a long time. And I noticed in the book that you said you wanted to thank Denise Clark for encouraging you <laughs> to do that. So that's, that's great. 
you've seen a tremendous amount of change in this industry. Mm. And I thought that one of the interesting points for me was the way that you talked about the different wine regions and the things that they all share as emerging wine regions, but then also what each region has done particularly well. Mm-hmm. And so in my previous consulting brain, I'm thinking, okay, what are the best practices? Let's start. How do we emulate what they're doing? And, um, but of course, Texas is a, is a unique region all its own, and it's a lot larger yeah. as, in terms of vineyard acres planted than, than the others. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so I know you, you've already got a great head start on Texas, but you had to do some travel to get to these other spots, I know. Yes. Uh, road tripping. It was a great, great year for road tripping. And this is actually pre-COVID, but yes, um, I spent a lot of time kind of just driving, you know, just, just being able to see the regions um, really, really helped put things in perspective. Um, and I think a perfect example of that was, was Colorado because, you know, all my life I've been going to Colorado to the mountains, right? To somewhere between Buena Vista. I know it's Buena Vista, but they say Buena Vista there, just so you know, all the way up through, you know, the ski towns and everything like that. But, um, I honestly had never been, and I'd been to Grand Junction, but I had never been to the Grand Valley. And so we drove there, uh, over a year ago now. And I just, I don't think anything could have really prepared me for how unique that, that region is. Um, and then I had been to Mesa Verde when I was a kid to the, um, to the national park to see, um, everything there, but I'd never, of course at that age, right. You don't consider that that could be a wine growing region. So down in the four corners where they grow wine in Colorado is also really, really unique. Um, Arizona and, uh, you know, of course there's a lot of cactus there. Um, but a lot of Arizona looked like some other parts of the world that I'd already been to in, uh, in Italy and in Southern France, uh, just as the hill country kind of mimics a lot of Southern France, particularly in the Provence area. Um, but I think, you know, seeing, you know, the red rocks and all just the different geology and topography, it, it was just it was key to being able to, to put everything in perspective and in context for the book. You definitely paint the picture. And I know that you're into fly fishing. So I'm guessing yes. you didn't mind all the trips out to Colorado. <laughs> no, I don't mind that ever. <laughs> so when you started at Texas Monthly in 2007, do you recall what your, some of your earliest assignments were? What was kind of the tone and what was the, what was the interest that you got from readers on those initial stories? And then, and then kind of talk, talk us through how you see that, um, how has that changed over the past 13 years? What have been some kind of key moments for you in considering your journey as a Texas wine writer? You know, I think, um, you know, when I first started, I mean, that first assignment I ever got from Texas Monthly was basically, can you go see if there's something worth writing about? Um, and I actually, so I'm glad you brought up Denise Clark. I have to credit her with that. And, and at the time, she was a PR person for, for TDA. She was helping TDA with all of the wine um, program that they were doing. This was over 10 years ago. Um, but she had already, she had kind of zeroed in on me as, as a writer with Texas Monthly, but was like, hey, um, maybe you should do this. And so when I got the, when I got the, assignment from Pat Sharp, who is the food editor for Texas Monthly. She said, you should contact this lady, Denise Clark, because she keeps emailing me about Texas wine and I don't do wine. That's not me that I don't, I'm not going to get into it. I'm going to stick with food. So yeah, she said, you should contact Denise Clark and see if she can help you get on the right track. And so that's really where I actually even first met Denise was through an assignment. And, um, so we went to a few different places. This was over a period of time. And one of the times that we were driving out, I believe it was to uh, Jim and Karen Johnson's place, um, Alamosa Cellars, which uh, is, you know, even though Alamosa Cellars is still not there, the, the vineyard is still growing strong. Um, she said, why doesn't, you know, if Texas, this is when blogging was all getting started and all of that stuff. And she was like, why doesn't Texas Monthly do just an online thing, like maybe like a regular check-in on different profiles or different things that are going on. And I was like, she's like, nobody's covering it in the state right now on, on, on that level. Um, 
And so, so anyway, I have to hand it to her persistence. Cause like, I don't know, I guess I could bring it up to my editor. She's like, do it. And then like a week later, she's like, did you do it? Did you bring it up? <laughs> and, and so there you go. I did bring it up and I was approved to do it and I've been doing it ever since. And so, um, it has been a fun journey and I definitely owe it to someone who just wasn't afraid to ask that question and try to make it happen. So, Yeah. Has the but, coverage over the years um, changed or what do you think? I, I haven't seen a whole lot lately in Texas Monthly. A lot of it's been online and I think you're still doing um, the w- best wines of the season. Or- yeah. So that, I mean, you know, Texas Monthly, and we, we probably don't need to get into all of uh, Texas Monthly as a company, right? But it's changed hands um, in the past few years. So my coverage and what they want and what they're looking for has evolved is probably the best way to say that. Um, but you know, and, and part of, to answer kind of that first question you were asking is how have I see, seen things change? And one of the things that we did start, um, that we haven't really done as much anymore is this idea of evaluating Texas wines blind and trying to get a feel with a bunch of these wines in one place. If you taste them blind and you don't know who made them, you know, what, what rises to the top, you know, what, what's remarkable or notable. And, um, so we start, I started doing that. Uh, let's see if I started writing on text month. It was about 2009 when I really started doing that. And I, at first it was just once a year. And then it became evident to me that, you know, as people different do different releases throughout the year, that maybe twice a year was the way to go. And then it kind of evolved into quarterly, um, which is a a lot of of work (laughs) to put together, to be honest. Um, But it became important to me. And what I started to realize is I'm just building like an encyclopedia in my brain of what's really going out there. What's, what's rising to the top. Is there a trend? Is there a pattern and all of that? And to be honest, there was. And so, so that's the hard part. Like my job has never been to be a cheerleader for Texas wine. I, I don't think it does Texas wine a favor if that's who I am. Um, I am proud of where this industry has gone, um, and where it's going. However, as I started doing those tastings, that's where it really became clear to me that that task in itself is really important. Um, you know, through all of that is how I started doing different sommelier certifications and things like that so that I could put, you know, Texas wine in context with the rest of the world. And it helped me be able to taste these wines, um, and, and evaluate them just all things being equal. Right. So as I did these evaluations, um, and I would usually have a couple of people with me, like uh, a sommelier and someone else who was in wine, uh, especially to help pour. So I didn't even see things get poured. It just, I'd show up to my table, there'd be glasses, I'd sit, we'd all taste together, and then go to the next um, flight. And um, the thing that came out of all of that was yes, okay, it's weird. Every time I did these evaluations, certain producers were always rising to the top. And, um, to be clear, I wasn't evaluating based on my preferences. I was evaluating based on, um, is this wine faulted? Is this wine something that maybe isn't my preference, but someone who likes this preference, I could stand behind and say, if you like this kind of wine, you should try this wine. So example, sweet wines, like I don't drink sweet wines. Right. And we've all talked about how the, the Texas palate tends to like sweet wines. And so a lot of producers have put out sweet wines. There are a lot of sweet wines that probably shouldn't be on the market, to be honest. And there are some producers who do a really good job with residual sugar and adding that, that sweetness into something, um, or allowing it to remain in there if they stop fermentation. Um, and it's balanced and it works. And it's something that's like, okay, you know what? that's, that's not a flawed wine. That's a complete wine. So the whole process of that, I mean, that was happening again, 2009, at least to 2018, 19 things are changing or have changed in the past year or two. But, um, that alone as a snapshot for what's happened with Texas wine and me being able to stand behind the producers that definitely continue to rise to the top, um, because of the consistency and the quality that they were putting out, um, that made me feel good about the task altogether. Um, and of course my favorite is when things rise to the top that are brand new and I'd never heard of, or, you know, maybe they'd been trying for a while and they got a wine in that was like, Hey, yeah, they hit on this. I'm so excited. Like that was my favorite thing. I'm like, Oh my gosh, they got a wine in, you know? So, um, 
those kinds of things. I mean, over I'm just this, that's kind of a look back, right. As to what's really been going on and, um, that kind of cataloging and documentation. I still have every single note I've ever written in my files for every wine I've ever evaluated. Um, and it's been extremely rewarding to, to be able to do that. Well, I know that you were working on the Texom um, International Wine Awards with the sommeliers, talking yes. to them about how to write about wine. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if some of them tasted Texas wine for the first time there. And have you seen people's eyes opened just through their exposure to Texas wine in a situation like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's pretty cool because the Texom... A uh, sommelier retreat, uh, which I've been involved with basically since its inception. You know, there were one or two early years where I actually, like James Tidwell, who's kind of organizes all of that, um, had suggested, could you do a presentation on Texas wine? So I had done that for them uh, early on. And then um, one of the, the things that we did one year was, let's see about the ageability of Texas wines. And so he pulled out from the Texom library from the, uh, from, yeah, the awards, a whole bunch of wines that were, that had had some age on them, you know, and I brought some from my cellar, which I have a lot, um, of wines that I've, I've laid down over the years. There are some that I'm still like, Oh, it's almost time. It's been 10 years. I want to check it out, you know? Um, and so I brought some, not, not all of them. I picked, I cherry picked some, but I wanted these sommeliers who are all, from all over the country, um, to taste. So we opened these up and they kind of went through and tasted, you know, we had probably, 50 different wines, um, and kind of talked about that. And, um, I ended up writing a story about that for the sommelier magazine that, um, Texom was putting out. And so in that way, the exposure for people who are not from Texas was starting to to happen. And it's funny because now I, I have developed relationships with many of these, um, sommelier retreat attendees and we've stayed friends and, um, I'm kind of their go-to person when they're like, Hey, I heard about this Texas wine or, Hey, you know, I was thinking it'd be cool if someone could taste this Texas wine. Do you have a suggestion on what I should suggest that they taste? You know, things like that. In fact, um, second city Psalms, which is kind of the Chicago area sommelier organization. They've asked me to do a zoom presentation in December on Texas, uh, in the Southwest, um, because of the, I've been their mentor. There was a quote that you actually wrote about Arizona, but I thought that I would bring it up because I'd love to hear your response to it in reference to Texas. And um, like I said, it's from the Arizona chapter, and this is the quote. As is the case with most emerging wine regions throughout the country, the hardest consumers to convince to support the industry are the ones closest to it. It's true. It's true. Why is that? You know, um, I'm going to, I need to be diplomatic, uh, but I, I am, I am confounded by it to be honest, because like I said earlier, I travel quite a bit. And when I start talking about how Texas or Arizona, even like that, that, that they make wines when I'm sitting at a table in France or in Argentina, they're like, really talk to me about it. Like, how are they? How, how, what successes have you had? You, you say you grow Malbec, how does your Malbec work out there or things like that? Um, and they want to talk, they're like, Hey, maybe I can meet one of the winemakers one time and talk to them about how they're doing things or things like that. And it's, it's always so fun. I'm like, wow, you're open to it. But then I'll be sitting at a bar at a restaurant pre COVID. Um, and I'll hear some guy say something. I mean, I literally was at dinner with my husband one night on a date night. We like to sit at the bar. This was, I think, last winter and was working on this book. And I, I heard this man who was sitting there with a bottle of, seriously, uh, a bottle of prisoner sitting right in front of him. And he was saying, yeah, I mean, I only, I mean, I'm, I'm really big into wine. He was talking to some lady. And I, you know, love this and da-da-da-da. And, you know, I've heard about Texas wines and I, I try them, but they there's no chance it'll be a cold day in hell before Texas ever makes good wine. And my husband saw me perk up and he's like, you have two choices right now. You could engage with a complete stranger and try to convince us of something, convince him of something that he's not at all interested in right now. Or we could enjoy our dinner and try to like focus on date night and probably not both. (laughs) Right. 
Um, I'm still married and I chose wisely in that particular situation. And, but the truth is I hear that more than I, from Texans, than I hear that is so cool that we make wine in Texas. Uh, I tell me, you know, who I should try. Usually I have to turn someone, like if someone's in a conversation with me and I say, yeah, I cover Texas wine for Texas monthly. They'll be like, oh, that's fun. Um, I bet it's really hard to find one that you like. And I'm like, I would encourage you to Google Texas Monthly, Texas Wine, Jessica Dupuis. And you can look at lists upon lists of wine that I encourage people to check out. And it's hard because people, I, I don't know what it is. I, if they think they're, edu- or if they're, if they know a little bit about wine, they think they know everything about wine, or at least they think they know everything about Texas wine. And it's the and whole- perhaps they had one that, that they didn't enjoy 20 years ago. And so they're not refreshing their, that is absolutely, their, their thoughts. That is absolutely the case. And so certainly the issue or the topic of quality being much better now than it was before, and not necessarily just quality, but appropriate wine for where we are is also a big topic. And so that's the kind of thing you have to get someone around. But if a guy sitting there with a bottle of prisoner is, is not going to give it a second look, it's because he likes really big Cabernet kind of wines from California that have a specific style. And I don't want that kind of wine from Texas because that's really not the best wine that we make here. So in that sense, it's kind of like, well, it's not even worth having that conversation. Um, but I will say we have a lot of interest or more interest from people who are younger because they got nothing to lose. You know what I mean? Like they're willing to try something and they like the idea of something that's local. Um, I hope that changes more and more. I definitely, um, I don't feel like I do think that when I first started, uh, covering it and especially because I didn't know as much about wine in general, right. I would be like, Oh yeah. I mean, it's a fun We're We're just kind of watching it and seeing how, where the story goes. And yeah, I know there's not, you know, some wines aren't that great, but some are really great. And, you know, just, you know, I understand if you haven't tried it before, that's okay. And then now, especially because I've traveled so much and tasted so much and understand so much more about wine in the world. Um, I'm like, you're wrong. I'm sorry you're wrong. And I would love to show you where and how, and let's, let's taste through some things. If you want to be challenged, let's do it, you know? And, and that now I just, I actually like those conversations. <laughs> yeah. People need to be informed. They yeah. just need to, to clue in because uh, the times have changed. Yeah. Well, and you also don't shy away from some tough issues in the book. And one of those is that you mentioned that perhaps one of the biggest barriers to success in Texas is the fact that some of some wineries use up to 25% out of state fruit mm-hmm. in their Texas wines, which is allowable mm-hmm. under labeling laws, yep. um, federal labeling laws. So in January, when the new legislature goes back in session, yes. I understand that this will once again be brought before the legislature. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you think that there's any chance that we're going to um, get any resolution on this issue. And how much do you think this is hindering Texas's ability to uh, move forward and, and be collaborative? Um, it's an interesting question and an interesting topic that uh, as a journalist with Texas Monthly, I felt like I had to be really measured in how I talked about it and how I covered it because there's definitely two sides to the story and both sides uh, in, in one vein I can respect, right? If, as a business decision, uh, you've got wines on the shelf. You need to put them out. If, if there's a bad vintage and you still need to put wines out or you just like the quality that you get by adding 25% of something else, I get all of that. I understand the arguments behind it. Um, but as I've mentioned, I've traveled a lot more now. I've understood a lot more about how other regions are doing things. And um, if we are going to be, I feel like a broken record. I feel like I know a lot of people that are saying this, but if we are going to be a region that is going to be internationally recognized, it is not going to happen until we get behind the agriculture of our state, period. And so, you know, now that I've written this book and I'm not writing 
I'm not talking about this from the guise of like a, a journalist for Texas Monthly. I will say that I definitely have an opinion on it. And we have to be one transparent because I know there are some wineries that are completely behind making a wine that's 100% Texan, but they might also have some vineyard contracts in California and they want to put out a Californian wine and they're at least putting it on the label that that's what they do. I won't get into that too much. Um, but what I will say is if you're going to put forward a wine that says Texas on it, you're not helping anyone, the consumer or the agricultural business, right? The growers, if you're putting 25% wine in there, that's not from here. And at this point in time, if we're going to be a grown up wine industry, we need to get behind that. So do I think there's a chance? Not really right now. I think, I think we have a better chance. And I think the more we beat the drum and the more that uh, the lobby behind it uh, grows, that it's going to happen. I think there are a lot of things that Texas needs to do before that actually does happen. And I'm sad to say that I don't feel like our industry is cohesive and what the message needs to be. And I'm probably not going to make a lot of friends by saying that because I haven't really said that you know publicly before. But I think it's a joke to go to the Rhone Valley and start talking to people there and hear about how they do things. And then, you know, ask them a question like, yeah, but do y'all put like 25% something in there from Piedmont? Like, cause I mean, that could add to some structure, right? Like how about some, how about some Nebbiolo in there? Cause that's a really great growing region. It would really add some really, you know, interesting things to the wine or, you know, being in New Zealand and saying, you know, that's stuff from, from Australia. You should, get, you should get something from the Yarra Valley and add that in with your Pinot Noir. That'd be so cool, right? Or maybe that would help your business structure or sell, you, sell more wine. Um, they would look at me like I was out of my mind. It would be offensive. It would be offensive. And until we get in, Washington feels that way. That's why they changed their laws. Oregon feels that way. That's why they changed their laws. Until we take enough pride in the grapes that our grape growers are growing, and they have a really hard time doing it, especially this year in the High Plains, until we get behind them and put forward uh, a, a message about our wine that is cohesive, then we're going to have to wait a while before people really do take us seriously. And that is no more exemplified than within the state of Texas. Yeah. I went back and looked at some of the press from two years ago when this issue came up before, yeah. and I was so distraught to see that there were some growers on record saying that if they made a stand in favor of 100% Texas, they were getting pushback from folks that may have contracts on their grapes. And so they were going to put themselves at financial risk um, by, by speaking out. So it, it's just such a... Yeah. I was at that hearing situation for those growers to, um, oh, yep. you? I was at, yeah, I was at that hearing. I remember that. Um, it's unfortunate because, um, it's a lot harder to grow grapes than it is to make wine. And I just feel like it is an absolute shame that we have to put relationships at risk like that. And that that kind of power is what is, is determining someone's ability to put forward an honest crop. Um, so yes, I covered that story. Um, and you know, I was, I was displeased or like you said, just kind of discouraged really that, that that's kind of the state of things. Um, and you know, listen, every wine industry, right. Even in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, right. They've got their issues too. And so does the Rhone Valley and so does Germany. And so everybody has their issues. So I do not want to say that like everyone's figured out the perfect model, but a lot more of these regions have figured out enough to be cohesive and to be, uh, to, to represent the region that they are in well. Um, and I, I think that will happen, but it's going to be a while. I was interested to see that you said New Mexico has a really strong growers association, that they've been very active in the past few years on education, legislation, marketing, all that. So it sounds like that state is really one to look, look toward. Uh, um, well, I actually it's Arizona. Um, oh, it's Arizona. Arizona kind of blows my mind. <laughs> like I, I, I just was so impressed, um, because they're small, right? Like they have 
maybe, I mean, they're between 100 and 150 producers, depending on how you slice what that means. And I won't go into that right now. But, um, and they have some serious quality fruit and some, and people who are really serious about doing the right thing with it. Um, and they have some, some limits in, in terms of what their government allows them to do. And, and in fact, like they are only allowed to produce so many gallons in a year, um, from a vintage and then that's it. So their ability to, for instance, get distributed out of, outside of their state is difficult. Um, but, but in terms of quality, um, and in terms of a commitment to that, that is, that really impressed me, especially in light of what I've seen with Texas and the efforts that have been made in the past few years to try to create a cohesive message. I went there and I was like, wow, these guys, not everyone agrees on everything, but, um, I just feel like they're like two or three steps ahead of us and they have been at it for much less time than we have. Um, it's not a competition though. It's, I think it's important to say that, but I certainly feel like we could benefit from perhaps making some relationships there and learning about each other's best practices, uh, and how to get to where they are now. But I like that. Yeah. I noticed that you put in the introduction to the book that you had organized it by where vinifera was first planted. So first New Mexico, then Texas. And then you said next is Arizona. Although by wine quality, that could be first. So I thought, yes. oh, goodness. Okay. Yes. And then also yeah. you have an I interview mean... in there. <laughs> and Doug Frost said the same thing. Um, there was mm-hmm. a quote from Doug Frost, who's both a master of wine and a master sommelier. And he said, if I were going to have to pick one state in the Southwest that really has its act together in terms of making great wine across the industry, it would be Arizona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, that has not been on my radar, I have to admit. So now my I, my interest is is uh, perked about about Arizona. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I, you know I don't say that to. I am super proud of where I'm from, and I'm super proud of the progress Texas has made. So I don't think there is any question in my mind about that and where we're going. Like I'm super excited for Texas. I just was really, again, for all the reasons I just said, kind of like, oh wow. Uh, wow, they're, they're on the right track and, um, and yeah, in terms of quality and, and across the board, you know, I just, yeah, I was pretty, pretty impressed. And I I think, I think we should be impressed and I think we need to be checking into it. I'm so glad I have to say that we don't have monsoon season. We have so many other weather calamities, but not monsoon season. No, not monsoon season. In fact, and this year their monsoon season came with a lot of hail. So a lot of people in like the Sonoida region just almost zeroed out and it's uh, just, it's painful. It's it's so hard. I don't know how they do it. (laughs) No, that sounds like um, a whole new kind of effort in viticulture that you wouldn't really know where to start. Mm -hmm. You don't need hail nets. You need rain umbrellas. Yeah, seriously. So if people are interested in obtaining this book, what is the best way for them to get their hands on a copy? Yeah. So um, again, it's from the UK, so you can order it directly from the Classic Wine Library. um, And you can technically order it from Amazon as well, although the copy uh, from Amazon is a little bit different. Um, And then I'm encouraging people, like if they would like a signed copy, um, they can actually go to my website and order it. And um, it's it, you know, then you have something a little more personalized. So that's actually been really popular the past, uh, few weeks. I've been, I've, you know, kind of made myself a fulfillment house, if you will, and have been shipping a lot of things. Um, and it's been really great. So especially as the holidays come and everything, like I've sold my cookbooks that way in the same way. And so it's, um, it's been really great. And so I would, I mean, my first hope and choice is that you might, um, do that way if you would like. So. That's a great gift idea. And what is your website? It's jessicadupuy.com. And there's a button on there to shop. And that's where you would see it pop up. Okay. Yeah. And I know in relation to this book, you've been doing a lot of Instagram live events. Yes. And you have a few more coming up. Yes. So people should definitely follow you on Instagram so that they can see when you're going live or at least watch the replays if they can't be there live because I've been on a few of those and they've been really interesting. You've talked to some interesting people and 
I think you've got a few more coming up. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, And the next, um, I think before this podcast goes live, there will be, um, I'll have one with a producer in Colorado. Um, I've got another Arizona person I'll be speaking to. I'm super excited about. He's like a sommelier and James Beard nominated um, uh, sommelier for a restaurant in Scottsdale, but he's now also making Arizona wine. And I think that's one of the interesting things about Arizona wine is you have these people who are... um, They've made wine in other parts of the world, and yet they're like, nah, we want to come back here and make it here. So that's kind of exciting. Um, so yeah, I'll do that. I'm talking to a couple of other master psalms. So June Rodel will be on, and James Tidwell will be on later uh, this uh, in first part of November. What is next for you as a journalist now that this book is through? Oh, man. Well, so... Um, I have to say that I, I really, I'm, so I'm still doing magazine work and, and things like that, still doing some stuff for Texas Monthly. Uh, this I will say that this book kind of had me push pause on a lot of that uh, in order to stay focused and get it done. Um, but I really do enjoy book work. I like the focus that, um, and, and just the ability to kind of dig deeper into something. So my hope is to do more in that vein, uh, more book work, definitely more with regards to wine. And so I hope that that's something that you see for me. And then not Great. too distant future. And did I see that you are studying <laughs> yeah. for your diploma? I am studying for my diploma. Yes. Uh, I start taking exams um, in December. So my first one will be in December. And it's all on viticulture, which is why I was saying I've been studying that a lot. Uh, viticulture and enology. And then we'll move on to wine business after that. And then it kind of gets into the nitty gritty of the wine itself. Well, best of luck to you. Thank you. Well, I sure appreciate your time. I'm happy to be here, and I'm so glad we had to, we got a chance to talk about it. It's, it's always fun to kind of see what people think after the final product is out there, you know? I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jessica as much as I did. Again, please visit her website to order your copy of her book. You'll get an autographed copy, too. That website is Jessica. Dufui, D-U-P-U-Y dot com. Also follow her on Instagram for her IG live series at Jessica N. Dufui. For our Occasional People in Wine series, today I'm considering a whole group of people, American Presidents. And actually, I'm reviewing a new book on this topic that I saw advertised and I just had to have. As a presidential history enthusiast and, of course, a lover of wine, I really was excited to check out this book, and it sure didn't disappoint. The book is called Wine and the White House, A History, and it's by Frederick J. Ryan Jr. And the book was published by the White House Historical Association. It is a giant 450-page hardcover book with a fancy desk jacket and a fancy picture on the front that shows a formal dinner party. It looks like a fancy state dinner. This is the first book of its kind, and it's a comprehensive journal throughout the history of the White House that explores every president's experience with wine. It features memorable presidential toasts, menus from historic White House gatherings, a catalog of wine vintages served, and photography from the White House glassware collection. I went through this book with a fine-tooth comb, and I want to share a few pieces of information that are of particular interest to Texas wine lovers. Mainly, I want to tell you about how wine was treated under the administration of the presidents that hailed from Texas and other presidents whose dealings with wine have been important for different reasons. In the interest of time, I won't start all the way back with George Washington. Let's start with Dwight D. Eisenhower our nation's 34th president. He was born in Denison, Texas, and grew up in Kansas. He was the president from 1953 to 1961, and with the greatest generation home from war, wine service at the White House took on added significance. The importance of state dinners increased, too. One big change that happened during the Eisenhower administration was that American wines were selected for luncheons and less formal dinners, Now, American wines were still considered a novelty and were actually frowned upon by many critics. At a dinner in February 1958, 
Eisenhower admitted to guests that the White House had secretly been serving American wines and let everyone believe that the wines were Europe's finest. American wines weren't served at formal White House state dinners until the Kennedy administration. Next, Lyndon Baines Johnson, our nation's 36th president. He was in office from 1963 to 1969. He was the first president to prominently feature American wines in the White House. He wanted to promote the growing American wine market and give it a sense of legitimacy. The wines served under his tenure were mostly from California vineyards, with a few from New York. Those were the two states with the most vineyards at the time. There's a great story in the book about how Robert Mondavi and his wife Marjorie attended a state dinner for the Italian president during the Johnson administration. The Mondavis rented fancy clothes and they hired a limo. When Robert's sister-in-law Blanche saw the photos of the state dinner, she became jealous and she convinced her husband, Robert's brother Peter, that Robert must be embezzling to afford such an extravagance. The brothers had a huge fight, and it led to Robert getting kicked out of the family business. The result is that Robert founded Robert Mondavi Winery, one of the world's greatest winemaking operations. His wines would be appreciated at White House dinners in the decades to follow. Nixon followed LBJ, and he undid all of the things that LBJ did for American wine. He reinstated the service of European wines at the White House, despite being born and raised in California. Nixon was really into European wines, although he did make some efforts to showcase the American wine industry. He was very involved in selecting wines for events and selected them personally. Towards the end of his administration, he did settle into a pattern. A German Riesling for the first course, a California Cabernet Sauvignon for the main course, and champagne for dessert. I learned the term pulling a Nixon from this book. Apparently, Richard Nixon had a waiter that would keep his wine glass filled with the finest first-growth French Bordeaux, while the rest of the guests were drinking more ordinary wine. Woodward and Bernstein said the same thing happened on the presidential yacht. Beginning with Gerald Ford, all of the wines served at the White House have been American. So Nixon was the last president to serve European wines at official dinners. Nixon served the first wine from a Midwest state. It was from Michigan. Jimmy Carter grew grapes and made his own wine before his election to the presidency. And after he left, he resumed his winemaking and donated many bottles to charity auctions. Although some believe that he didn't drink because of his Baptist faith, this book reports that, in fact, they did drink wine, but preferred it to hard liquor. During the presidency of Ronald Reagan from 1981 to 1989, interest in wine in the U.S. reached a new level. Reagan had strong relationships with California winemakers, and they were regular visitors to the White House. The Reagans showcased a wide variety of wines, with just a few receiving more than three placements on dinner menus. The exceptions were Schramsberg sparkling wines. These were the standards. These were the standard for dessert. And Jordan and Robert Mondavi also appeared multiple times on menus. On February 22, 1987, during the Reagan administration, there was a dinner in honor of state governors. During the first course, a 1985 Llano Estacado Chardonnay was served. Then the meal continued with a Cabernet Sauvignon from Idaho and with dessert, a Schramsberg sparkling wine. This was the first recorded Texas wine served in the White House, according to this book. George H. W. Bush took office in 1989 and served until 1993. One of his acts in office was to sign a law proclaiming the last week in February 1993 as American Wine Appreciation Week to celebrate the growth and success of the American wine industry. Bill and Hillary Clinton were responsible for hiring the first wine professional onto the staff of the White House. Daniel Shanks' title was Assistant Usher for Food and Beverage, but his job was to select wine, pair wines with menus crafted by the White House chef, and organize the cellar. George W. Bush gave up alcohol on his 40th birthday, but during his administration, a crisis was averted when French President Nicolas Sarkozy visited in 2007. 
All three of the wines served were developed by joint French-American wine ventures. Then, February 23, 2003, during the George W. Bush administration, at another dinner honoring state governors, a 2001 Becker Cabernet Reserve was served with the main course. There's a photo of that Becker wine in one of the sidebars in this book, and it mentions that Becker wines have been served at the White House on several occasions, as well as at Prairie Chapel Ranch, which is the Bush Ranch outside of Waco in Crawford, Texas. Three years later, another Becker wine was served at another governor's dinner. This one was the 2004 Becker Reserve Chardonnay. And that completes the list of the Texas wines in this book, although I know other Texas wines have been served at less formal affairs in the White House. Now, Barack Obama was a self-professed beer drinker, but Michelle Obama apparently hosted wine tastings in the White House for her close friends. And finally, Donald Trump is a non-drinker, but he's the first president to own a full-production winery. Vice President Mike Pence is also reportedly a non-drinker. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden reportedly doesn't drink, but Kamala Harris does. She's known to belong to at least one wine club in California and is a member of the Congressional Wine Caucus. That's a bipartisan group formed in 1999 to protect the interests of the wine community from grape to glass. Congressional members from Texas include Lance Gooden, Kay Granger, Veronica Escobar, Pete Olson, and Lloyd Doggett. That's not in the book. I just did that research on my own. Back to the book. There's one reference to Texas that is sadly missing, and it's in the section on phylloxera. Remember, phylloxera is the vineyard pest that decimated European vineyards in the mid to late 1800s. The author states that the solution to phylloxera was grafting French vines onto American rootstocks, and that those American rootstocks were generously provided by California winemakers. Wait, what? California winemakers? I feel fairly confident that Texas's favorite grape horticulturalist, T.V. Munson of Denison, Texas, is the one that provided that rootstock that saved the French wine industry. There's also a section in the book called Virginia and Beyond that really spells out the history of winemaking in the United States. It focuses heavily on Virginia, but also mentions Washington, Oregon, and New York. Sadly, Texas isn't mentioned. The rest of the book has a large section on the White House serving pieces, glassware, ice buckets, goblets, and decanters. And then there's a collection of presidential toasts. There are over 100 menu cards with presidential seals and calligraphy. And finally, the last 60 pages has a catalog of all the wines served at formal White House dinners. To date, wines from 24 states have appeared. The three Texas wines I mentioned are the only ones that are listed in the book. But which Texas wine will be the next one served? And which president will hold the next state dinner? The story of wine and the White House will be continued. We are in the middle of an election, folks. And if you haven't already, please vote. Today I'm drinking a wine from Yano Winery, and it's the 1836 Red. In keeping with our theme of history, this wine is called 1836 because on April the 21st, 1836, a band of rugged pioneers won the Battle of San Jacinto, and the independence of Texas was established. And this red wine celebrates the spirit of those who fought for the great Republic of Texas. So this wine is part of Yano's fine wine portfolio, and it's only available at restaurants. I was able to get this wine because it's part of the State Fair Blue Ribbon Program. And last week at a virtual tasting, Yano winemaker Jason Centali was part of the panel, and it was great to meet him. And Bill Friedhoff, the VP of sales for Yano, was also on the call. The blend on this wine is 42% Cabernet Sauvignon, 41% Syrah, and 17% Tanat. The blend changes a bit from year to year, and when the fruit doesn't come in, then they don't make this wine, if they're not happy with the fruit quality. 
So this was Yano's first on-premise wine that they ever did, and they do this in conjunction with their distributor to highlight just what amazing things Texas wine can do. It's a flagship-style wine. Now they've got 10 on-premise wines, apparently. This was aged 20 months in French and American oak barrels, and 50% of the oak was new with medium-plus toast. It's 14.7% alcohol. This is a big wine. You can tell by the alcohol percentage and, and the oak. Um, it's got really ripe, big fruit. It's, a, I think, a great wine to offer in restaurants. I'm guessing that it shows up a lot, probably in steakhouses. And it would be a super wine to have with a big hunk of meat, I have to say. It's got a lot of ripe um, blackberries, some pretty significant tannins. I think it would be one that you could definitely age for a bit. It's got some tobacco and cedar aromas and and leather. It's a nice, big Texas wine. It screams Texas to me. I'm impressed with this wine. I actually had not had it before until we did this Texas wine case. So I'm glad that I had the opportunity to try it. While Yano definitely has a wide variety of less expensive wines, these on-premise 1836 wines are worth seeking out if you see them on a menu. The white wine also has won awards. I mentioned earlier that this red wine just won Best Red in Texas at the San Antonio Stock Show. Now, it's also not too late to buy the State Fair of Texas Blue Ribbon case. There are still some available. So look for that in the show notes if you're interested. It is not too late to buy the State Fair of Texas Blue Ribbon case. That is 12 great Texas wines. There are still some available, and I will link to that order form in the show notes. Please go to www.thisistexaswine.com for full show notes for this episode. There are links to everything that I talked about today. And also please subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it too. That helps other people find the podcast. The next episode will be out in two weeks. And I hope to see you before then, maybe out at a winery or on a wine trail. It's Texas Wine Month after all. I'm at Texas Wine Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You may email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com with any feedback or questions. I love hearing from people. Thank you to Jeff Cope and Texas Wine Lover website for helping promote the podcast and for being such strong supporters of Texas wine. Remember to visit TXWineLover.com whenever you have a question about a Texas winery or Texas vineyard. Thanks, Texas Wine Lover. And thank you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all. <laughs>